0: This morning's scripture reading can be found in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. If you'd like to follow, there's a blue pew Bible in front of you, and Colossians 1, 21, 23 can be found on page 983. The word of the Lord. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... The word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together.
1: Lord, you've given us your word, and, and you mean for us to benefit from it. You, you don't give it in vain. You, you give it, and you give your Spirit. You give all that we need, Lord, so that we really will be nourished on this word and transformed, as Steve has prayed. And, Lord, you really will present us in that final day, holy and blameless and without reproach. And you will continue that process throughout our lives. We put ourselves under your care even now, Lord Jesus. As you said in John 15, that we should remain in your uh, Love and remain in your commandments, Lord. remain under doctors' care, so to speak, but remain in your prescriptions, under your precious, kind care, the care of your word, the care of your promise, the care of your commands. Oh Lord, we would put ourselves under your gracious care. Amen. You know everybody asks uh, why. Why everything, right? Scientists are on this uh, quest to try to organize all knowledge under some theory that will explain every particle of the universe. And, of course, each one of us uh, are wondering, how do the particular things in my life and all the sometimes bizarre, sometimes wonderful, sometimes tragic things that happen in this world, how will they all fit together and make sense? And we may not understand the details of every single thing that happens in this world. Certainly we will not. But the passage that we've dealt with the past couple of weeks, this great hymn from verses 15 to 20 that precedes what uh, was just read uh, by Ron, is, is a hymn that tells us the basic story of the whole universe. That's our context, and I want to just underscore it, because that's the context for what we we consider this morning. It basically <clears throat> tells us the Creator recovers His creation. It tells us that the One who created the world, there's none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the One who created the world and holds the world together came into the world as flesh and blood to recover the world for himself. There you have it, okay? There you have the whole world. That's the whole story. That's everything right there. And every part of our lives, and everything we see around us, in some way is a part of that story of the creator who entered in with his own flesh and blood to die to recover this creation so, as this passage has said, he's the meaning of the world. He's the one for whom the whole world has been made. You could say, in a sense, then, that Christ is the theory of everything, right? He's the theological theory of everything. Everything fits together only in him. And that is the setting for our personal recovery, which we'll deal with this morning. See, the setting for our personal recovery to God is the recovery of the whole of creation. As one guy put it, from whales to waterfalls, <laughs> the whole created order will be reconciled. Glorious. That's what Christ is going to do. And in that context, he's going to recover us as well. Your recovery is in this passage put in the context of creation 's recovery, so in the reconciliation of all things, you yourself have been reconciled as well, so we 're going to look at three aspects of it that just in in each verse is one aspect before, after, and now, okay, pretty simple <laughs> before, after, and now, so before. He says in verse 21, you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you. I love what Calvin says at this point. Let us consider that our happiness consists in our cleaving to God. That's our happiness. And there's nothing more miserable than to be alienated from Him. Our happiness consists in cleaving to him, nothing more miserable than to be alienated from him. And Paul says, you were once alienated. Alienation implies isolation, it implies loneliness, it implies a deep sense of not belonging. In the movie Love and Death, Woody Allen, in his characteristic humor, has two characters discussing emptiness. Boris... I feel a void at the center of my being. His friend, what kind of void? An empty void. I felt a full void a month ago, but it was just something I ate. <laughs> right? <clears throat> we have this incredible void because we are alienated from God. Uh, this Fred Craddock uses this example, and I just got a picture recently from someone about who went and found some conch uh, shells. So, But when you pull a big shell up to your ear, you just hear the roar of the ocean, right? And he puts it this way, you hear the roar of the ocean until it can be put back there, okay? And he uses this to illustrate, if you could bring your ear up to the soul of any human being, you'd feel, you'd hear the roar of the presence of God that they long for, the roar of God himself that they ache for in their void. Any shell you listen to, any human shell. But Paul tells us more here about what this alienation is like and how it manifests itself, right? He says, alienated, hostile in mind. And it doesn't read literally doing evil deeds, it's it's just this, hostile in mind in evil deeds. That's the way it reads. This indicates, hostile in mind, that your disposition, your whole attitude, all your thinking is hostile to God. There's a determined opposition to God by nature. We don't tend to think of ourselves as that bad. But this God himself says to you, no, this is you by nature. This is who you are as I found you, okay? And it shows itself in the evil, see? Hostile in evil deeds. This hostility pours forth in evil deeds. The evil deeds are there because we're hostile, Hostile means enemy. We do these things because we're his enemies. And this alienates us from God. We do evil. He does not. Another way to put it is this God is love, but we are not. He's good, but we are not by nature. He's kind, but we are not. He's patient, but we are not. We're evil because we're not like God, we're his enemies this is why we wrong each other. And this is why we are alienated against him and he us. You know, we sometimes say about a particular person, you know, I just don't have anything in common with him. We really don't have anything to talk about. Well, in our sinfulness, you could say, we just don't have anything in common with God. We just don't. Now, I know absolutely we're in his image in all of this, but in terms of our sinfulness, in terms of our fundamental commitment uh, to ourselves, we, are, we have nothing in common with God. God moves out to enter into the hurt of others, to bear their pain, to suffer in their place, to do them good constantly. This is what God does at great cost to himself. We just don't tend to be like that. We protect ourselves. We don't want to suffer for others. In fact, we do the, other, uh, the opposite. We will exalt ourselves at the expense of, expense of others. Putting them down. Gossiping. Saying evil things about them. And there's no comparison with how excited we are when something good happens to us or we achieve something versus when it happens to somebody else, right? No comparison whatsoever. Um, Ask any brother or sister that, right? When your brother or sister gets something, are you just so happy about it or just a little jealous about it, right? Right? In fact, many times you'll find your brother or sister gets something. You're so far from being happy about it, you're sadder now than you were before. Really? Like it, everything was fine, everything's great. My brother gets something. Oh. Now, if I loved them and I wanted their happiness as much as my own. I'd be just as happy that they got it as I would. That's how far we are from God. That's how unlike God we are. We're alienated from Him. He finds His happiness in making us happy even though it meant His own suffering. That's what God is like. Even though he's doing it for people who up to that point despised him and rejected him, he wants to do them good who have tried to do him harm. And we are just not like that. We're alienated from this God and therefore in ourselves headed for everlasting judgment from this God unless he rescues us. You see, we had to be recovered. We had to be recovered. That's the before. Then the after. He says, he has reconciled in his body of flesh. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Notice, it's God that takes this action, right? This is amazing because... It's God against whom we've acted. We're the wrongdoers. We're the ones that have abandoned the relationship. He's the one we've hated. And yet it's God who takes the initiative to reconcile us to himself. God acts to recover us. And this word reconcile obviously indicates that there's been this break in a relationship, right? This disruption between two people that's repaired so that they can enter back into A relationship of love, a relationship of mutual uh, uh, support and kindness amongst people. And so it's an amazing thing that God desired reconciliation. It's an amazing thing that God desired us looking at what we are and how unlike Him we are. And He wanted us. He wanted us badly. He wanted us so much, He would suffer to get us. And you think, how could He when we're so alienated from Him? But He desired to be our friends. He, our friend, He desired for us to be nothing less than His children to whom He would give all things, these people that were alienated. So it's God's operation to bring us into dizzying happiness for the whole of our lives. God that wants to make us that happy. And it says, of course, he does it in his body of flesh by his death. Body of flesh seems kind of redundant to us, but it's underscoring his his physical nature of it that he completely shared our life as a human being. Uh, And Calvin again says here, the Son of God had to become man and be a partaker of our flesh that He might be our brother. I love that. He became our brother like us in flesh. And of course, He became our brother in flesh so that He could die for us and reconcile us to his father. He didn't need reconciliation to his father. But he came and became our brother in flesh so he could take that flesh and die in our place so that we could have his father And he talked about reconciliation back in verse 20 as well. And there he's talking about reconciling all things to himself. You see there the phrase, by the blood of his cross. Same thing is saying by his death here. And and blood shows that a life has been taken. You remember, uh, many of you, that in the Old Testament when the death angel was going forward to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, the only thing that saved the israelite homes was that they smeared lamb's blood on the doorpost and so the angel of death sees that a life has already been taken and so the death angel doesn't take the life of the firstborn so that blood represents no a life has already been taken there's a substitute and you don't have to take the firstborn And that's what the blood of the cross is for us, right? The symbol that a life has been given, the one who is actually called the Lamb of God, has been given as a substitute for us. Otherwise, we would have been killed. But if we hide under the blood of that doorpost, that raised post, that tree, then God looks upon us and says, a life has been given for you none other than the life of my son, it's your substitute and you're safe. In fact, you are in my favor now. And it's a remarkable thing that night that as the Egyptians were wailing at the horrible loss of the firstborn, the Israelites are enjoying a meal in the presence of God. There you have the result of reconciliation of blood. No longer alienated in death, but recovered and in the feast with God, in His favor. And so, because of this life that has been taken, the judgment and death that we deserve falls on Him and not us. And isn't it amazing that God would give the substitute of His own Son for us? to bring about this reconciliation, to rescue us from what we had brought upon ourselves, alienating ourselves from God and bearing his judgment because of it. Notice, though, there's more uh, to this after. Reconciled us, and then there's this purpose clause, in order for this reason to finally, and here I believe he's speaking in the last day, as many would hold this, most, that he's speaking of the last day that he he will finally present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. This means that at the end of time, at the end of history, we will be presented in this way. It means provisionally, of course, that if we die and stand before him, we will be holy and blameless before him in our spirits as well. But what a contrast with what we were. Alienated, hostile, practicing evil. Now we are like God. We were opposed to God in every way. And then we become like God in every way. What a major reclamation project. Yeah, This barren, wasted, ruined land being now restored so that it's bursting forth in a glorious, rich forest. There is the contrast. You once were this, but now you're this. And here's the wonderful end of your life, holy and blameless and above reproach. So reconciliation not only means, and this is precious, that we have this constant acceptance and favor with God But it means we will have a whole different character before God. Perfect in that last day, but progressive along the way. Even as Steve was praying from 2 Corinthians 3.18. This renewal that the Spirit is bringing about in our lives. So our restoration of relationship means a complete restoration of character. Restored to God so that we will be like God. And brothers and sisters, it's only in being like God that we can be as happy as God. And you better know God is infinitely happy. I love that emphasis in John Piper's writings. He says, you don't have this morose, depressed, uh, sullen God for a father. You have this incredibly happy God who is a father, who always does his will and is always accomplishing good things for his people with the infinite joy and nothing can stop him from doing it. And he catches us into his unlimited happiness, his infinite happiness that he has enjoyed for all of eternity. And of course, it's only in the restoration of this character of love that we could ever hope to have eternal happiness together, right? I mean, you and I better change a lot if we're going to be together forever. (laughs) And we're going to be intimate forever. How could we be happy with each other unless there is nothing in us ever again that would harm each other? How, How could we ever be perfectly happy? There's nothing in you that will harm me. Nothing in me that will harm you. Only good. Only good. He remakes us so that we're perfectly kind and good and gracious to one another. And without that, we have no hope of happiness or community. We have no hope of happiness within ourselves. Only those who love are happy. As even Jesus said in talking about love, right? In John 15... You've heard me quote it, maybe, we're literally a hundred times, but that passage where he says, in the context of love, I've spoken these things to you that your joy might be full and that you might have my joy. You see, his joy and fullness of joy are only had in love. And so in restoring us to himself, he was restoring us to ultimate and final Happiness as well. So this reconciliation, you're reconciled in his, through his death, has this final glorious transformation into the image of God as its goal. And that means that we'll be able to enter into the fullest and freest, most delighted communion with God, overwhelming communion with God, because we will be just like him. Our love will be like his love and our kindness like his kindness. Our happiness in welcoming and embracing one another will be just like God's. And we'll see in one another only good and brightness and and beauty. And then in that day we'll be able to say, we have everything in common with God. That'd be amazing we have everything in common with God and His goodness. And then the last section. There's the before. There's the after. You could say there's the now. And this big if is a bit disturbing to us when we first read it. If indeed you continue in the faith... Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, first, it needs to be made clear. He doesn't say, if you continue in the gospel, you will be reconciled, right? That's not the the grammar. In other words, it's not, if you keep obeying God, then it shows that you'll be good enough one day to earn your reconciliation. That's emphatically not what's being said. It's saying, if you continue in faith, it shows indeed that you have been reconciled, that He has brought you to Himself. But this still bothers us because we know that we fail in many ways. We fail in our faith. We fail in our thoughts. We fail in many things we say and do. Now, it's important to understand that Paul's not talking about individual instances of obedience and disobedience. He's talking about an overall lifestyle, for one thing. He's talking about the fundamental orientation that you have as a human being. Now, in in that line then, if you abandon the faith, if you say... I don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I refuse to trust Him. I do not think He's trustworthy or real. And I abandon all hope that the gospel holds out to me. And you decide you're going to live what you can get out of this life, no matter what happens in the next, okay? That's turning away from the gospel. That's not continuing in the faith. But it it doesn't have to do with your day-to-day struggle to believe. This is a call to keep trusting Christ. So when you're faced with a new insight into your sin, it's not meant to undercut your assurance that you belong to him. It's simply another reason to trust him to save you from your sin. That's all. So so keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. It's another reason why you so desperately need the precious blood of Christ to be your substitute. It's all the more reason why you need a mighty Savior to rescue you. Your your personal failure is no reason to quit believing in Jesus, right? To come up against the darkness that's in your heart, you may discover has been in your heart for years. That's no reason then to abandon trusting in Jesus. All the more reason to trust Him and thank Him and put your life in His hands to change you and forgive you. So fundamental to the Christian life is that you've been brought into a relationship of acceptance with God so that you can explore the bad parts of your life without fear of rejection. That's part of the whole point, is that you have this uh, relationship of acceptance in which there's room to discover and grow as a human being. You can be honest about the dark things that you're thinking, aren't honest about the dark things that you've said and done, You have a relationship, as Jacob has said, in which you don't have to hide. You don't have to play like you're better than you are. You have an atmosphere in which you can face yourself. It's a constant process of discovery and change and discovery and change. All in the atmosphere of the precious acceptance that you have in Christ Jesus Now, sure, yes, if you abandon Christ or you continue to profess Christ while you abandon altogether seeking to obey Christ, that's a very serious thing, (laughs) very serious. And you can't plead and say, as many have, when confronted with 20, 30 years of total disregard for the church, total disregard for Christ, oh, it's okay. When I was twelve years old, I walked down front and received Jesus, you know. No, no, that's not continuing in the faith, right? That's not continuing to to trust. No matter how much struggle there might be, no matter how much failure, no matter how deeply at times it just seems like you're going to go crazy finding out all the bad stuff that's in your life. That's fine. That that doesn't matter. What matters is this fundamental orientation that trusting in Jesus to save me. I'm trusting in Jesus to forgive me. I'm trusting in Jesus to change me. Don't turn away from that. And that's the focus, isn't it? Continue in faith. Continue in faith. Continue in hope. Continue to trust that your sins will be forgiven. Continue to trust that He will change you. Continue to hope that you'll be brought to final resurrection and glory in Christ. Continue to trust in Christ and what He will do for you. It means receiving the Lord's Supper. Week after week, trusting what Christ has done on the cross and that He freely gives Himself to you in the Lord's Supper. This word continue means many times to remain in a certain place, right? To stay in that locality. I love that as a way to think about this here. Stay right there believing, right? stay right there trusting in Jesus. Stay right there hoping in what He will do for you. In the midst of your failures, stay right there and trust in the promise of Jesus that He has died for your sins. And when you see the darkness of your heart and when you struggle to change, stay right there trusting in Jesus' promise that He will surely transform your life. And when the bottom falls out relationally, financially, Physically, stay right there hoping in the final resurrection and the renewal of all creation. Stay there. Stay there and believe Him. I want to remind you, this is... You may think this is a weird twist, but what's new? Um, The final verse of Jonah... The final verse of Jonah... In fact, the final words of Jonah are pretty amazing. You know, Jonah's upset because God has had mercy on Nineveh. And he's like, I knew. I knew that's what you were going to do. That's why I didn't want to go over there. You're going to go have mercy on the pagans. I knew it. So upset, you know, so put out at the mercy of God. And here's God, reasoning, amazing how patient God is with him, you know. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? And here's the last few words. And also much cattle. (laughs) What? And, And this is so glorious. It's as though God says, Jonah, there are all these people and there are cows down there. And you think, But you know what that tells me? It tells me he's going to reconcile all things, isn't he? He cares about every part of this creation, doesn't he? He talks to Jonah about the cows in Nineveh. That's what we're a part of. The renovation of the whole creation. And you're in the middle of it. You're the driving part of it. Because he reconciles you. He will reconcile all things and you yourself will be presented in the perfect, glorious image of God in that final day. Let us pray. Lord God, we, how can we begin to scale the Mount Everest of your glory and goodness? Look what we were And look how you came after us, sacrificing yourself on the cross. And look what you do for us, remaking us into your very image, making us good like you are good, making us clean like you are clean, forming us into this community of love that we will enjoy forever in your presence. How could you look at those who had despised you and and have mercy on them? And yet, here we are by your grace. Lord, continue to open up our hearts to the incredible landscapes of this sweet gospel that its beauties may ever Refresh our hearts and renew us for new love and obedience. Amen.